This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions to provide you information that you can trust will be faithful to the dignity of the human person as understood by our Catholic Church. Today we're going to cover several interesting news articles that we think you'll like. I'll also ask my medical trivia question of the day. And then in the second and third portions of the show, we will interview Dr. Eustace Fernandez about end-of-life care and critical care planning. He's a local intensive care pulmonologist. And at the end of the show, we'll talk about some other interesting facts from the life of Dr. Fernandez in the intensive care unit, as well as the answer and explanation to the medical trivia question of the day. So on to the news. Something I saw, Chris, that I was uh, intrigued by, and I think many people will be, including from an ethical viewpoint, is that of an article that for the first time in history, a patient's DNA is being changed. And this patient has something called Hunter's syndrome. I'm sure you remember that from medical school. Yes, it's, it's not been that long since I was in medical school, so it's very easy for me to remember. <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> rare disorder is called a mucopolysaccharidosis or a lysosomal storage disease, which should mean nothing to 99.9% of our listeners. And we actually had to look it up as physicians too. <laughs> but what happens in this disorder is that you get deposition of chemicals throughout the body that you don't want. And it leads to a lot of life-threatening problems. And this first patient on November 13, 2017, was injected with billions of copies of the gene to make the right product instead of these wrong products. And it was done in Oakland, California. And if only 1% of his liver cells take up this gene, he will get no further damage from this rare Hunter syndrome. He's only 44 years old. He's had 26 operations. So it's like this magic that happens, these things called zinc finger nucleases go in and they snip out the bad gene, they plug in the good gene, and then they zip it into place. It's just amazing. Have you ever heard of anything like that, Chris? It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get much better than that. So is this a moral issue? We're changing somebody's DNA. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Depending on how much you know about this therapy, it could or it couldn't be, I suppose. I think the question would be, what happens to the DNA that he could pass on in his children? So if he were now to have a child, would the child have been affected with the condition before this therapy? And would the child now be affected with that condition after this therapy? You know how to ask great questions, Chris, because <laughs> that's exactly what I think somebody would want to know. And the National Catholic Bioethics Center has looked at this. And because they're only changing his own chromosomes and not ones that he could pass on to somebody else, they see this as a completely restorative procedure or treating him to try to make his cells do what they're supposed to do. You know, a lot of our listeners would probably connect this with the idea, at least conceptually, of a bone marrow transplant for a cancer patient. Yes. We're giving them what they're missing, but it isn't going to affect the gene line, so to speak. Exactly. Just like if you work out really hard and get big muscles, you're not going to pass those on to your children as much as they might want them. Well, apparently we'll know sometime around mid-February of 2018 if this is going to work or not. So keep your ears and eyes peeled for that news. But this is exciting. This is some of the main things we've been looking for in medicine is a way to affect these diseases where there are problems with your genes and chromosomes that you inherited. This could open up wide vistas of medical care. And you know, equally interesting, I think is strangely, this doesn't involve embryonic stem cells. So much of the magic that we hear about in the media regarding medical research often references embryonic stem cells and inappropriately so. This is the potential for real therapy, a real cure, for a really terrible disease that doesn't involve the destruction of human embryos. Exactly. And exactly how many diseases have embryonic stem cells been used to successfully treat? Let me think on that. Uh, none, Tom. None. That's right. Whereas adult <laughs> stem cells have treated a number of diseases. But that's another topic for another show. A second news article that I noticed uh, in my world as a dermatologist, I have patients often wanting to text me pictures of themselves and tell them what they have. And I've done this, and I often use it for patients, especially after surgery. If somebody thinks they're having a complication, they can just text me a picture, and that really saves everybody time and money. Well, now there is an article out 
And it says that smartphone pictures by parents of children with rashes has an 89% agreement on diagnosis, whether it was done by the picture on the phone or in person. And it says in this article, which was published in JAMA Dermatology, JAMA has nothing to do with something delectable you might want to put on your toast or pancakes. JAMA is the Journal of the American Medical Association, but they have a number of sub-journals, and there's one JAMA Dermatology, and it says, quote, parents can reliably take high-quality photographs of their children's skin condition using smartphone cameras. And when they just gave three simple instructions on how to take the pictures with their smartphones, the quality of the diagnosis went up and up. Have you ever wanted to do this as a dad, Chris, or can you see the utility with patients? I mean, I think it's, as a parent, I think it's very easy to see that utility. As a physician, I'll have to admit, I've done this with my patients many, many times. Patients will have a simple question, maybe about an incision after surgery, and maybe they traveled five or six hours to see me. If they can snap a quick picture, I can look at that and reassure them that it's okay. That can save a lot of heartache. At the same time, if there's something serious going on, we're going to find out that early and get get on top of it quickly. So I think it's got tremendous utility, and it's something that we'll just see more and more of. And I hope we do. Uh, I think one of the problems right now is reimbursement. Right now, nobody's paid for this service, and we are providing a service, and we hope to find a way to get you know paid what it's worth, not more than it's worth. Uh, the other problem is privacy. The way I personally look at it is if someone is texting me something on my phone, they know the risk they're giving it to me. I just can't send it to anybody else. However, in the study, they had the picture sent to the electronic health record associated with uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Yeah, then th- it was uploaded. I think it's interesting, um, and I certainly text and email with my patients and have for several years against the advice of a lot of sort of legal experts. But I think every time we have the opportunity to remove a barrier that's between the patient and the physician, the patient and the physician both win. Anything we can do to improve that access, improve the unfettered communication, everybody wins. Amen to that. And if you just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio with Dr. Chris Stroud and Dr. Tom McGovern today. Yes, I think there is a lot of frustration with the loss of the physician-patient relationship the way it once was, or at least that's the perception, but I think it's a true perception. I think it is. And I, you know, my mantra at work is, whatever is best for the patient, let's do what's best for them. It, It gets everybody working in the same direction. This is one of those things where I think it is. Now, I believe that Chris has something he wants to bring up from our own USCCB. The bishops of our country have recently made a statement on a long, ongoing subject. Yeah, this is a a really interesting letter from the USCCB. That's the United States Council of Catholic Bishops, most of our listeners are aware. And it's dated November 21st, and it's a letter from the bishops to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. Uh, That's the government entity that oversees Medicaid and Medicare and really drives health policy for the country. And this is related to religious exemptions and accommodations for coverage of certain preventive services under the Affordable Care Act that we often euphemistically call Obamacare. And it's it's a great read. It doesn't take very long to read. And I'm certainly not going to go through all of it with our listeners. But the thing that I love about it is they so clearly, in our bishop's wonderful wisdom, they so clearly point out that covering contraceptive services is not preventive health. Uh, They go on to point out that a preventive service is something that prevents a disease, right? And, And so the disease that contraceptives are preventing is? Not a disease at all, but rather a state of health. That is to say, fertility. On the contrary, the absence of fertility is a terrible disease state. But yet, in our culture, we want to treat the presence of fertility as a disease. They point out and they give several nice examples. Mammography, that's preventing uh, breast cancer. Pap smears, that's preventing cervical cancer. Contraception, that's not preventing a disease at all. Uh, That just brought to mind, would treating intelligence as a disease be like treating fertility as a disease? Sometimes I wonder if our culture is unwittingly doing that, but (laughs) I digress. Go on. Uh, No, I mean, I think your point is a valid one. Uh, But I was so moved by this. I would encourage our listeners uh, 
to go to the USCCB website, and we'll put it on our webpage as well, and read through it, because if nothing else, you'll come away uh, with such a great feeling that, you know, our bishops are wise men, and they have the heart of the church at the forefront of their work. And it's a brilliant argument as to really how preventive services shouldn't be covered under the HCA. Now, besides that point, they make a second major point in there, don't they? Now, you're tricking me. So which point are you thinking is the second major point? The point about religious liberty, freedom of conscience, that we should be allowed. In fact, that our laws do allow as physicians to not have to prescribe that or for health plans to not have to provide something they think is wrong. And they make the point in here, the laws are already in place. It's just that our government has been ignoring those laws which protect people and plans that don't want to provide those things. And for those that are following religious liberty issues related to medicine, every day in sort of a quiet yet very successful campaign, those liberties are being eroded, whether it's physician, so-called physician-assisted suicide or healthcare workers participating in abortion care. In several states across the country, we're seeing very concentrated and sadly, unfortunately, successful efforts to erode that liberty. We should always be allowed as healthcare providers to say, I believe that's wrong and therefore I'm not going to participate. Absolutely. And we need people in the pews, people in your cars listening, people at home to let your government leaders know that you want your physicians to be able to use their consciences to do what's best for you. Well, to end this segment, I will give you my medical trivia question of the day for you to ponder, and then you'll receive the answer to it at the last part of the show. This Today's, is very exciting. I think we should pause just out of respect. This is good. Yes, yes. <laughs> and here it is. Where are you most likely to encounter a borborygmus, and what should you do if you find one? I'm starving to think of the answer to that. I oh. just can't wait. <laughs> oh, you are leading a great segue to the answer for where you will find a borborygmus. But until we come back with our interview and next segment, this is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Doctor returns now when Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud will interview our guest today, Dr. Eustace Fernandez. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Fernandez. Thank you for having me, fellas. And he is a graduate of The Ohio State University's Medical School and Internal Medicine Residency. He then moved a little bit east to become a Pittsburgh Steeler fan while doing his Critical Care Pulmonology Fellowship at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And since 2004 has practiced at Lutheran Hospital in Fort Wayne. Dr. Fernandez, what is a pulmonologist, what is a critical care doctor, and how are they related? So I'll take that with the explanation of what a critical care doctor is first. You may hear them referred to as intensivists. So you may hear a loved one say, "My, I'm being taken care of by the intensivist. And that is a way of explaining the type of doctor who works in the intensive care unit. It doesn't mean that you just walk around with a stern look on your face. <laughs> well, we all do. That's how we're meant to be taken seriously. But, but no, so we do a special fellowship taking care of the most critical patients. So these are patients with overwhelming infections, patients who have had open heart surgeries, patients who have had a drug overdose, intentional or unintentional. It's a wide gambit of medical problems that render someone critically ill. So we spend time um, kind of being the captain of the ship in that ICU setting. So we direct the patient's care. We interact with other doctors who come in. It seems like these days every patient has a doctor for every different part of their body. So there's the heart specialist and the kidney specialist and, and the neurosurgeon and the, this person and that person. And our job is really to help guide the patient's care along and act as kind of a captain of the ship. We interact a lot with families. We do lots of bedside procedures. 
and we usually attend to patients who have hospital emergencies who are not in the intensive care unit. So on the TV shows where people yell out code blue or something, we're, the, we're sort of the first responders there. Are intensivists always pulmonologists or lung specialists? No, that's a good question. So there are many different branches of medicine that have critical care specialties. It grew out of pulmonary medicine, which is the other thing I specialize in, which is the treatment of diseases of the lung, because many patients with diseases of the lung end up requiring respirators. They require machines to help them breathe. And and this relationship probably uh, began with the iron lung and post-polio syndrome where people lost the ability to breathe and needed doctors to take care of them. And these were lung specialists and out of that grew many of the other disciplines. But over the years, there have been many other specialties that have developed critical care, such as anesthesia and surgical critical care. Those are probably the two largest. So from a patient being outside the hospital to getting to the intensive care unit, there's a step in between, and that is, how do you know as a physician, or how does any physician know when a patient should be in a hospital instead of at home? Well, this is one of the things that is sort of the art of medicine. We have to evaluate patients in the emergency department all the time. And someone who taught me and I learned a lot from said, you just have to answer one question, sick or not sick. <laughs> and everybody who comes to an emergency department is, is not feeling well. They have a problem. And my job a lot of the time is to decide, are they, are they ICU sick? Are they intensive care unit appropriate? And... I had, there's a complement of data such as x-rays and laboratory values and bedside interviews with the patients and with their families you know but but some of it really comes down to having experience spending time with people putting your hands on them listening to them and actually being doing like normal doctor stuff so what are some of the things you use to decide that they don't only need to be in a hospital but they need to be on your turf in the intensive care unit? So normally patients will show you their vulnerability, usually with laboratory data or with an x-ray. And we, we look for is that we're, you know, the way God made us is that we are a whole person, but we're, we rely on a number of organ systems working together in concert. So they're perfectly integrated. Something that tells me that a patient might require the intensive care unit is that multiple organ systems are not working. So they might be having difficulty breathing, they might have a very low blood pressure, they might have a very fast heart rate, or they might just be mentally confused. It sometimes is very meaningful for a spouse to say, hey, my, my spouse is not acting the way he normally was. I found him stumbling around in the house. And that may be the first indication that something is really wrong, whether that's an overwhelming infection or an early sign of a stroke. So it's really important to be present to both the patient and their family members and just listen. You know, just hearing you say that, I think about very sick patients. And I think most non-physicians think that as physicians, we deal with death all the time because that's sort of the Hollywood view of a physician. We know, though, the reality is we don't. You, however, as part of your work, you confront life and death on a semi-regular basis. I wonder if you could give listeners really a sense of, of what that's like. Well, um, it's a sacred moment to enter into the end of someone's earthly life. There's no other way to describe it. And it's, you know, it's, it's a painful moment, um, obviously, for the family and uh, sometimes for the patient. But it's also a painful moment for those who, who care for them. And, you know, doctors tend to be these sort of isolated, stoic people. But, you know, the bedside nurses, the patient care assistants who come in and, and help turn the patient and bathe them and do really like the, the corporal works of mercy for them, they share in that sorrow of the loss of a human being's presence to their family. And as a doctor, I think the challenge for us, you know, critical illness when a patient is hooked up to IVs and machines and this and that, it, it can be a very dehumanizing experience. So one of the things we 
allow for, we have to allow ourselves for, if we're going to continue to practice our art well, is allow ourselves to be wounded a little bit by the human being that's passing from this life to the next. It's interesting hearing you say that. I know you to be a man of great faith. I'd be interested to know, as, as would our listeners, how do you feel your Catholic faith changes maybe the way that you interact with patients and their families during these most critical times? I think that's a good question. I mean, in, in a couple ways. First of all is that it, it helps me to keep my head up because I know that this life is not the end. Mm. I know that we were born into this world and we'll exit this world and hopefully we'll all enter beatitude. We'll see the face of God. And so many physicians feel personal failure or they feel burdened. What did I miss or what did I do incorrectly and why did this patient die? And sometimes it, it allows for acceptance that, that everybody goes out to meet their maker. And uh, so, so I think that, that when a patient goes out to meet the Lord, sometimes it, it can be a very joyful experience for the family and for the patient when they, when they have a real sense of readiness. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where today we are discussing end-of-life care with Dr. Eustace Fernandez, a specialist in critical care medicine and pulmonology. I know that you have witnessed a number of deaths. Are there any deaths you have witnessed that have, have particularly edified you? Uh, I, I think in our community, we take care of a lot of our Amish patients. Yes. And sometimes... You know, when the end has come, there's a, a really, really beautiful, quiet family acceptance of the fact that their loved one is going out to meet the Lord. And there is a quiet resolution, there's a strength there, and there is a unshakable confidence that their loved one is going out to something better. Many times, there have been instances where Amish families have sung together beautiful hymns and, and sometimes in most of the time in a language I don't understand <laughs> and held hands and surrounded that person who's passing away with unbelievable love and prayer. So that's been, that's been deeply moving. And on the flip side of that, have you seen any deaths that have in some ways horrified you? Yeah, um, unfortunately, there are occasional cases, and and this is this is when we do not have, uh, or the family doesn't have a particular, or the patient doesn't have a particular understanding of faith of what happens next, or confidence that they go to something greater, and they heap technology upon technology and continue to invade the body, and 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 it's it's driven primarily by fear. The other instance that, that has shaken me is when, you know, I make it a, a, a point to ask any patient who I think death is imminent or coming, would you like a chaplain? Would you like me to pray with you? Would you like, is there, is there some aspect of your faith that I can attend to? And people say, no, I don't want anything to do with that. Hmm. And, and that's deeply chilling because there's a sadness there and there's a fear there. And again, you can see people um, gracefully leave this life, and you can see people go uh, sort of metaphorically kicking and screaming, and, and it's, it's not pleasant. There's another thing, scenario I've heard you mention in the past, and that is where the family is at the bedside, and they're kind of asked what they hope to do or they want to see happen to their loved one, and the answers they give kind of suggest that they hope they'll die sooner than later. Yeah, unfortunately, we live in a culture that equates someone's worth with what they can do. So we know that each person, as Catholics, we know each person, whether they're perfectly healthy or incredibly ill, has infinite value to God. But unfortunately, it's like Pope Francis talks about the throwaway culture. Um, when people outlive their utility, we say, well, what do we do now? And there are financial implications, which no one no one can downplay, but oftentimes a, a patient is okay with the fact that their life is coming to an end, but they want to be surrounded by love. They want to not feel as a burden to their family, and they want their family to step up and say, we love you, we'll take care of you um, however long we have you, and we value you. And And I think, you know, it's it's a real tension in how we deliver healthcare now because we use what someone can do to determine their worth and it's a very, very dangerous business to try and determine uh, the worth of a human life. For the last question for this segment, 
I want you to just introduce what we'll talk about the next segment, something called advanced directives or physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. So everyone should have an advanced care plan, and that's, an, that's a fancy way of saying we should have a general idea of what we want for our general health, particularly as we approach the end of life. There are a variety of documents and decisions that can be made, and some of them are helpful and some of them are not. And, and hopefully we can explore that a little bit more. Thank you, Dr. Fernandez. We'll be right back with more Dr. Doctor coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Chris Stroud, along with Dr. Tom McGovern, and you're listening to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Uh, And we're talking about something that will affect every single one of our listeners. That is our death. Uh, And, you know, as I think about it, Dr. Fernandez, my wife and I recently updated our will. And we got to the advanced directive section, and there were several choices, and I just needed to put a check by one of them. Uh, And one of the options was, just let your doctor decide what's best for you if you become incapacitated. And my tendency was to just check that. After all, I like my doctor, and I assume he'd make good decisions for me. And then I realized, that's not such a great idea, probably. Maybe you could share with us why that's not, and what box should we check there? Sure. So I'm a big fan of everybody having an idea where they want their general health care to go. And this this goes for young people, um, people in the middle of their life, and people towards the end in particular. So we, we all want to preserve our health. We want to exercise. We want to have perfect cholesterol and things like that. Within that general plan for our health care is something called an advanced care plan. So this is what happens when we begin to get sick, when the body over time, or maybe even suddenly in the case of young people, a younger person, begins to fail. What do we do? Are there limits to the care we desire? Are there certain lines that we would not wish to be crossed? And so I'm a big fan of trying to get a general idea of where we see our healthcare going and where we see that very particular moment towards the end of our earthly life, where we see that going. Now the pitfalls are that none of us know what's going to happen next. And so none of us have the gift of foresight about complicated medical conditions. And one of the things I always try and emphasize when I'm, I'm talking to people about this is that medical care is incredibly technologically complicated. Therefore, the decisions we're trying to make cannot be oversimplified. We need all the facts. We need to know and understand what's happening in real time. So that is the heart of medical decision making is informed consent. Part of the problem with saying, hey, doc, you just do whatever you want, is that you're presuming, number one, is that, is that your doctor shares your values. And that's not always the case, sadly. Secondly, you're assuming that that doctor has enough understanding of how you might do long-term, what your prognosis is, how life might look for you. And the complexity of a medical decision in real time is always going to be more complicated than simply checking off a box. Yeah, I mean, I think you make an important point, and that is it's easy to think that these advanced medical directives are for the elderly or the infirmed. But as you point out, it's equally, if not more important, for the young people as well. That's true. I mean, unfortunately, you know, life throws a lot of curveballs at us, and there are always things that will happen. We always find situations in the intensive care unit where a young person may sustain a horrible brain injury or may suddenly find themselves because of a automobile accident suddenly a, a paraplegic or a quadriplegic and dependent on machines to breathe what do we do with that as you think in your experience can you can you give us an example of um, uh, perhaps a common occurrence where a faithful catholic may unknowingly make uh, an advanced directive choice that's contrary to church teaching Well, I think there may be a situation where somebody says, 
I don't want any form of artificial nutrition or hydration. And this is largely framed by uh, media portrayal as something where this is something permanent, invasive, painful. And really, how I try and discuss this with my patients, particularly um, ones who have had strokes or maybe a surgery or have had a breathing tube down and, and can't swallow, I say, well, you know, if you were at home, someone would give you food and water if you were sick. If you were well, you would get your own food and water. Right now, you can't have it in the normal fashion. So I would like the opportunity to simply provide it to you by an alternative means. So, so sometimes the phrasing we use, we say artificial, and that sounds really bad, but I say alternative when I'm counseling my patients because truly that is what it is. This brings us to some terms we hear in Catholic teaching in medicine as extraordinary means and ordinary means. How does that play into your care of patients, and how is that important, whether something is ordinary or extraordinary? Right. So ordinary means that we must provide it. It's a basic need, and, it, and we're required as Catholic health care providers to, to give that to our patients. Extraordinary means that it is beyond the line of what is necessary, humane, and directed at the preservation of the dignity of the human person. So we take an example like something like artificial nutrition. The intention of nutrition is to nourish the body and to allow for the patient to recover. So if someone had a stroke, for example, and was unable to swallow, and we chose not to give them nutrition because it was artificial, the effective cause of death in that patient arguably would be malnutrition and dehydration, which would clearly be contrary to our faith. However, if a patient had a large tumor in their stomach, and the nutrition we were providing by that alternative means would simply be consumed by the tumor, placement of a tube might cause the patient pain and bleeding, that would not be considered an ordinary means for that patient. Oftentimes we would like to, as Catholics, we'd like to put it in a box. Okay, this is ordinary and this is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. But really what we have to do is weigh, what is the burden of the intervention to the person and what is, what is the potential for benefit to that person? If you just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are interviewing today Dr. Eustace Fernandez, a specialist in intensive care unit medicine and end-of-life care. Have you seen patients who have not provided advanced directives? And if so, how often does this happen? It happens quite frequently, and I have seen it in the intensive care unit oftentimes with unexpected illness in a previously vibrant person, but it can also occur in someone who's been chronically ill, but unable to come to terms or unwilling to talk with their loved ones about what they would want. And it puts the, the family in a fairly vulnerable situation. We never make great decisions when we're in crisis. So when patients' families are struggling with these decisions, or even patients themselves, oftentimes they don't make great decisions that they've had time to prayerfully consider. I always encourage my patients when I see them in my clinic to sit down with their loved ones and have a pretty open conversation about what they would want, what they would not want, what, how they feel about machines, and, and just begin to introduce the topics so that it's not an all of a sudden thing. Is it fair to say if you were to find yourself in the role of family maker and decision maker for a loved one, that the charge is to decide what that person would want, which may not be exactly what you would want, but as the decision maker, you're charged with representing them. Is that appropriately said? That's, that's right. So. One of the most useful documents and one that I would encourage everyone to fill out is a durable power of attorney for health care. So we, th we hear about powers of attorney, but a durable power of attorney for health care is someone that you know and trust to make your medical decisions as you would make them. And this should be somebody who understands your values, understands what the church teaches, is not afraid to seek counsel from medical experts, from clergy, etc. 
as I stated, you know, as, a, as a we were talking about, these decisions are incredibly complicated. So to have somebody who can kind of digest that information and say, okay, I know my loved one and this is how they might look at this, that provides incredible amounts of peace to the other family members. And where can we find that form to fill out? The state of Indiana provides a form. Most attorneys provide a form. There are several Catholic websites, such as the Catholic Medical Association. I believe there's a link on, on the Catholic Medical Association. Provides a, a simple document where you can appoint somebody. Um, there also is a document that's relatively new to the state of Indiana called the Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment, which is called the PULST treatment, that has a section on there where you can designate someone as the durable power of attorney for health care. Would you recommend then if someone's in the hospital and they don't have a directive and they're shown this PULST form, is there a way that they can fill out that form and still in good conscience be acting uh, according to a Catholic way of looking at the world? Yes. So the PULST form has several sections to it. One of them simply says, if my heart stops or if I stop breathing, what should, what should happen? Should I be resuscitated? Should someone do CPR? Should they do shocks on my chest? And in certain cases, that would be appropriate for a, a, a believing Catholic to fill out. The second section asks one to anticipate what will happen next, and it takes a morally neutral position on nutrition, tries to make us anticipate complicated medical decision-making in advance, which is fraught with problems. And then the last section of the POLST uh, allows us to designate a durable power of attorney for health care. Indiana's POLST law does not require screening of patients for mental illness. It does not require it ever to be reevaluated once it's filled out. So maybe somebody has a pre-terminal illness but makes an incredible recovery. It does not require anyone, a healthcare provider, to go back and reevaluate the situation. It does not require a physician to do the counseling about it. So anyone can do the counseling. So you're there, not a big fan of the Pulsed. I am not a big fan of it. I think that this uh, is a, a document that is better left blank with the exception of the durable power of attorney for health care because there are not enough safety mechanisms in the current legislation. So bottom line, if you are presented this Pulsed, fill out the durable power of attorney part of it. And that will be the best way you can use that. But beforehand, what should you have filled up before entering the hospital? Your durable power of attorney now, for healthcare. Now, I see that, though, some of these also include a list of patient wishes that you want your durable power of attorney to know. For instance, when I filled out mine and listed my wife as my durable power of attorney, it also asked me how I thought about antibiotics and pain medications is there a special name for that portion of it, or is that part of the durable power of attorney form? That's part of a durable power of attorney uh, form, but ultimately the most important piece of that is the person. Is the person. Is the person, and that person has to sort of live in a world that you live in and understand how you see the world and is going to make good choices that respect your dignity and autonomy. Well, this is... Dr. Tom McGovern and Chris Stroud signing off after a very enjoyable interview, very informative interview with Dr. Eustace Fernandez about the end of life. And uh, we will return to you soon from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Dr. McGovern, I know that many of our listeners have probably pulled over to the side of the road because they're anxiously awaiting the answer to today's medical trivia question. I know what that's like. I myself love trivia. So today's trivia question was, where are you most likely to encounter a borborygmus and what should you do if you find one? Well, a borborygmus is the medical word for that rumbling sound you can sometimes hear across the room coming from somebody's stomach or intestines. In the 
Medical Dictionary, it says that a borborygmus is the rumbling or gurgling noise produced by the movement of gas, fluid, or both in the alimentary canal and audible at a distance. And I'm often operating on patients and somebody in the room, the nurse, the patient, or I, one of our stomachs will start to sing. And inevitably, the patient says, oh, somebody must be hungry. That's funny. I notice that sound most typically uh, at mass from the person next to me, usually in the quietest moment of the, of the liturgy. That can happen, but it's a misnomer that it only occurs when somebody's hungry. It can occur when somebody's hungry, but it also commonly occurs during digestion shortly after a meal. Now, where does this crazy-sounding word come from, borborygmus? And it actually has the same root word as the word barbarian. And the term barbarian came from Greeks who met people who spoke a language besides Greek. And to them, it sounded like they were mumbling. They were going, ba, 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 ba. So they called them barbarian. And so that's where borborygmus comes from. The sound reminded them of the way barbarians talked. <laughs> so now it has this word that is actually in the English language. But what does it mean? Well, usually the sound's coming from the small intestines, and it's commonly associated with hunger because at that time the intestines are empty, so they have air and they can amplify the sound. But it's all related to the normal muscular activity that's pushing food down our intestines to the end so that it can be uh, absorbed. So most of the time, a borborygmus is just a normal part of being a human being. So unless you've been hearing them loudly and more often than usual, you can rest assured that your borborygmi are a normal part of who you are. We now have the chance to discuss a few items of interest with our resident pulmonologist, critical care physician, Dr. Eustace Fernandez. And today he wants to talk about something that you find on your driver's license, that little box that you can have checked that said, I choose to be an organ donor. What should we know about that, Dr. Fernandez? Well, I think it on its face appears to be the right thing to do. And if one is, feels called to do that, certainly they should think through it carefully, discuss it with their families, etc. Pope John Paul II, when he was addressing a convention of transplant surgeons, indeed identified the donation of organs as, a, as an authentic and genuine gift of self-donation. And so I think we have to take that wisdom and pray on it before we check that box and immediately put the organ donation sticker on our driver's license. Now, donation of organs is a historically long process, and there's a precedent for how it's done. And a lot of how it was done in the history of transplant medicine is that it was begun with someone who had actually died. So the heart had stopped and they had stopped breathing. And that was essentially how we defined who a dead person was. But as science has advanced, the threshold for what we describe as someone who is dead and therefore capable of donating organs has changed. So originally, there would be a corpse there. Everybody thought it was a corpse, no breathing, no heart beating, therefore no brain waves. And then they would open up the chest, take out the heart, and it would miraculously start working again. Well, no. Or seemingly miraculously. Seem seemingly miraculously. Correct. There's a lot of elegant science and surgery involved with that. And, and that elegant science and surgery has advanced. And one of the areas that has become of interest is this idea of, of what is death in its essence? Is it simply just when the heart and, and the lungs stop working? And the concept of brain death has been introduced into our, into our verbiage. And so that becomes another question for us as Catholics. If someone is brain dead, is that the same as actual death? And if someone is brain dead, what does that mean? And are those organs now available for donation? When you think about those possibilities, could you give us some idea as the average listener, what would the circumstances be perhaps where they're most likely to encounter needing to make a decision about organ donation. And when I say that, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the, the child of an elderly parent or the parent of a child, heaven forbid, where there's been some tragic event, 
and they're going to be approached by someone talking about organ donation. Could you give us a sense of what that's like? Sure. So sadly, we see the second example you gave of an unexpected tragedy in a relatively young person who is otherwise healthy and whose organs would be desirable and indeed helpful in the right circumstances to someone in need. And the things we want to ask is, number one, has death actually occurred? Has the heart stopped and the respiration stopped? Or has the brain stopped? Not is the brain non-functional, but has the brain actually stopped working at the most fundamental level? So the body and the things that tell the body how to work are no longer and irreversibly lost. So there might be an example where someone has had a drug overdose, which unfortunately and tragically we see all too commonly, and those basic reflexes of the brain will be absent. They'll be gone. And someone might say, well, this person's brain dead. Well, no, it's the effect of the drug. So what I'm getting at is that we have to be very careful about how the declaration of brain death is made, who is making it, have all the criteria been fulfilled, and are there any mitigating or confusing circumstances that might cloud the picture, like a drug overdose or a new medication or something else that might make someone appear to be dead who in fact is not. And in that terrible moment, how does one get that practical information? I think they have to take a deep breath. I think they have to understand the situation and not accept one opinion. Make sure you ask questions about, is my loved one's condition reversible? Is it permanent? What does the next 24 hours look like? What do the next 24 days look like? And get a long view of what life might look like for that individual. And don't ever feel pressured into making a decision. Take time, pray, and seek counsel with those who share your faith and values. Now, but, isn't it true that Pope John Paul said that brain death criteria can be morally acceptable? Yes, and that is absolutely true. Unfortunately, in the culture where we're practicing medicine, sometimes the evaluation is not done as carefully as it ought. And what I'm saying is that brain death is probably a real entity, but we have to be very, very cautious about how we declare it, and we have to be rigorous about making the declaration of brain death. Are there any key words a listener would want to hear when someone's talking about how brain death was evaluated? I think they would want to know whether there was any presence of brainstem reflexes. Brainstem reflexes. And the second thing is, is my loved one's condition irreversible in nature? Are there any other circumstances such as medication or being extremely cold, which we call hypothermia, which can create a picture of brain death that might create a picture that's not accurate? Thank you very much, Dr. Fernandez. I think that's incredibly helpful, useful information. And now, Chris... Let's go to a few questions, or at least one question from our listeners. I'd like to ask you this, Chris. Have you ever had to compromise your Catholic faith in your role as physician? And this, again, is asked by one of our lay listeners. Yeah, that's a great question, isn't it? And the answer is yes, and it's, it's what led me to where I am today. Uh, it, it occurred to me uh, as a Catholic that I was doing things in the course of my practice that were wrong and that were not consistent with church teaching. And so I had to deal with that. It took me a while, but I had to deal with that and change the way I practice medicine as a result. The, the simple example is performing sterilizations. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist, and that's commonly done by OBGYNs. Sadly, it took me a while to figure it out, but I realized I couldn't continue doing that as an authentically Catholic physician. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio with Dr. Chris Stroud and Dr. Tom McGovern. We're talking with Dr. Chris Stroud about whether or not he's ever been asked to do anything uh, in his role as a physician that would compromise the Catholic faith. So what is it that brought you to realize that those things weren't good for you or your patients? Well, you know, I think uh, like many Catholic physicians, I felt as though I didn't have a choice. You know, you can't be a police officer and not be willing to carry a weapon. 
right? (laughs) I felt like as an OBGYN, I had a physician exemption. And I'm sure many practicing physicians feel the same way. They don't let their faith in their exam rooms because the culture doesn't like you to do that, right? But the reality is we can't leave our faith outside of the exam room, not and be authentic to our values. Do you think your patients would like you better if they did whatever you asked, regardless of what you believe, or they knew that when they came to you, they, they would always hear you say what you think was truly best for them? You know, it's funny. As I think about the answer to that, I remember uh, a Muslim patient and her husband that I took care of about a year ago. And we became very close through the course of her pregnancy. And when they came back after, uh, after the, the birth of their child, her husband said to me, we really like you. You make us comfortable. And that struck me as unusual. I wasn't expecting to hear that. <laughs> and he said, you're a person of conviction, and so are we. We have different convictions, but we respect people who live by their convictions. Uh, and I found that very telling. I think... Most people, even if they disagree with your positions, respect the fact that you live by your positions in a consistent and authentic way. Absolutely. I think about hearing about colleges who host guest speakers and they're Catholic colleges, and so they remove the crucifixes if it's not a Catholic speaker. (laughs) What kind of convictions does that school have? So I want to see somebody like that, too, as my physician, regardless of what faith they are, if they are people of conviction. Exactly. We appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to us here on Dr. Doctor. But signing off until next time, this is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And remember, the healthcare decisions you make today may have eternal consequences. Choose wisely. Choose Catholic.